famed 20th century neo-Orthodox theologian Karl Barth was once speaking at the University of Chicago on April 23rd, 1926. Now, interestingly, uh, we, we don't know if what is said to have happened next actually happened or not, but it is reported by many that one of the students at this event asked this great theologian if he could summarize his theology in just one sentence. And he replied, well, uh, I have a song that I learned at my mother's knee that summarizes it all. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now what's interesting is, you know, obviously that you've got this great theologian that points to a children's song as a one-sentence synopsis of his theology. If you know his life and his doctrine, though, then you know that it's also fascinating that that song is probably truer than even he knew, because he himself questioned whether or not you could literally call the Bible the Word of God. And he also, if you look at his life and what's been discovered as of late, his life was kind of a train wreck. It didn't really show that he knew the love of Jesus. But is that song, do we understand the depths of what it means? I mean, his response is profound in its simplicity and its implications. Knowing that Jesus loves you, being grounded in the fact that the Bible tells you this. There's some kind of assumption about the nature of the Bible as the Word of God and the way that you're understanding how it confirms and gives you a kind of certitude that you are loved by Christ. And it tells us something about Christ himself as well. See, God himself has told us that he loves us in his word. And yet, recent studies show that most professing evangelicals don't read their Bibles. The Bible that tells them that Christ loves them. We also know that as we look at our, our culture around us, Recent studies show not only that evangelicals aren't reading their Bibles, but many are instead flocking, flocking to read books, pretending to be a fresh word from God, like the book, The Jesus Calling, while ignoring the Scriptures, as though there's some kind of substitute for the very word of God. We know that as we consider the world around us, and even our own homes and our own hearts, how quickly we can lose a, a warmth and a longing and a desire and an urgency to look to the Word of God. We ignore God's Word and chase spiritual experiences when the Word, the voice of God, calls us. Then enter the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1, 16-18. As we are wondering, should we be so focused on the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament? Is it that big of a deal? Should we be looking beyond that? We have Peter, where he has just shared in 16 to 18, his experience of the transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John, they were eyewitnesses of the divine glory of Jesus Christ. It was mostly hidden and veiled through his life, and yet in this one moment, they got a peek of the glory of Christ foreshadowing of what was to come on that holy mountain. They heard the very voice of God, the Father, coming down from heaven, confirming this is the Son, the Son that Isaiah 42 said was coming. The same suffering servant spoken of there. It's the, the Son that was promised in Psalm 2, the great King who would judge the nations. He's here. God the Father speaks, and what is he doing? He's quoting the Old Testament, and he's speaking to his people. I guess God liked the Old Testament. And Peter said, I had the ultimate mountaintop spiritual experience, guys, where we heard God's voice confirm the future day of the Lord. Now, we're, we're continuing this morning, I remember this series, where we want to know true knowledge. Now, we're in 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21 this morning as Peter continues this argument he began in 16 to 18. And this morning, we find that Peter's giving us a glimpse into his view of the Scriptures. He says, all of Scripture is God's Word. 
Now, if you're just joining us, let me catch you up to speed. Uh, Peter writes this letter. I think it's probably the same audience that First Peter, that first letter, was written to. Uh, those mostly Roman Christians, Gentile Christians in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. Uh, that'd be today modern Turkey. And Peter is sensing that his death is near. And, and with that in view, he is wanting to leave his, his generation and future generations with uh, a word that is going to be protective for them against false teachers that are going to come. And, and he anticipates that those false teachers that either are there or are coming, that they are going to be teaching at least a couple of things. One is that Jesus isn't coming back. And the second thing is that it doesn't matter how you live. And I think those are connected realities. But notice that Peter begins unpacking his arguments in verses 16 to 18 where he gives us that vision of the transfiguration. He says, there the voice of the Lord came down. It was born to show us that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he is the one who is coming on the great day of the Lord that we await. Well, this morning we're going to see that Peter goes on to the offense against false teachers who interpreted the Old Testament to suit their own fancies. Now, our big idea is this. The Old Testament prophecies of the day of the Lord Jesus are God's word. The Old Testament prophecies of the day of the Lord Jesus are God's word. Now notice first this. We're told in verse 19a, Christians have the Old Testament. Christians have and need the Old Testament. Now I take this we that begins verse 19, and we, to to speak of the apostles, just like in verses 16 to 18. And notice there what Peter says in verse 19. He says this, at the very first part of that verse, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. There are two questions that, that emerge when you read this. The first is, what is this prophetic word that he speaks of. You'll notice prophecy seems to be pretty important because he repeats this idea uh, three different times in verses 19 to 21. Uh, If you look down to 20, he mentions prophecy of scripture, and then in verse 21, prophecy. So clearly prophecy is central to this text. Now, one commentator listed six different ways this phrase has been taken ranging from the transfiguration as a kind of prophetic act that just proceeded in verses 16 to 18, to the the whole Old Testament, to particular nuances of the Old Testament, specifically focusing on the return of Jesus, to specific texts like Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2. So there have been a lot of options that have been offered. But what's clear is, is that everywhere this word, prophetic word, is used, it's intended to speak of the Old Testament scriptures. That's what it it speaks of. And I think this is at least what Peter has in view. Now we do know that at the transfiguration, as I've said a couple of times already, he had a couple of texts in view that the Father, God the Father, is quoting down from heaven. He's pulling from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. And he might as well have just added a little footnote, so says God, because he said it there too. And those scriptures were speaking of a coming great day of the Lord. But a second question you have to ask is, what does it mean for the Old Testament scriptures to be more fully confirmed? Now, this can't ultimately mean that something happened to make the scriptures more truthful than they were before. Does that make sense? Like when God speaks, it is entirely trustworthy Because God has spoken and God is truth himself. He's the author of truth. He is the truth against which every other truth is evaluated. So I I don't think that that's what Peter has in mind. Now some have taken this to say that the Old Testament is more fully confirmed than his eyewitness experience at the transfiguration. Like he's comparing those two things. But that would in some ways kind of pit the transfiguration against the scriptures as less trustworthy, and even that event was scriptural, which seems to fly against the whole reasoning that Peter has here, where he's moving from the trustworthiness of his eyewitness experience to the trustworthiness of the scriptures. 
Now, some translate this word more fully confirmed in another way is very certain. So he's not comparing it, but just saying that this is a very certain word. The scriptures we have are a certain word from God. Well, in context, I believe more fully confirmed is correct, but it's communicating that the transfiguration confirms the apostles' interpretation of the prophetic word. Here, concerning the day of the Lord, over against the false teachers who were saying that Jesus wasn't coming back to judge his enemies and deliver his people. So here's what's fascinating to me. Peter describes in careful detail his eyewitness account of the blinding divine glory of Jesus Christ and the transfiguration. Glorious. One of the most profound experiences in human history. It is an indubitable historical fact. He makes clear that this actually happened in time, in space, and he was there for it. But don't miss this. That was just the prelude to Peter saying, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Do you see it? He's, he's building from that into the significance and the meaning and the power of the Old Testament and the Scriptures. So that when it comes to truth, there is no firmer ground to stand on. There is no more authoritative word to appeal to. And no more relevant argument that can be spoken once Scripture is spoken than Scripture. See, the truth Peter witnessed at the transfiguration served to confirm the trustworthiness of the truth of Scripture. You see that? He's saying, here's an event to show you, you can trust the Word. Like Jesus was just, because we're slow, he was helping us. Like this happened, this is true. Now part of me wonders if Peter is saying, I heard from God uniquely at the transfiguration. And consider all the words that we hear from God in the Bible. They are all equally true and from God. Do, Do you see that? He's comparing those. He's drawing those together. Do you you view your Bible that way? I mean, some of us think, oh, if I could just have a transfiguration experience, my faith would grow. But what he's saying is, is if you understand the transfiguration, then you're going to understand your quiet time with the Scriptures. And when you hear the preached Word, and when you open up your Bibles, you are looking at the very words of God. I love a quote that I was reminded of just yesterday when I was talking to a brother about this very text. And, and he reminded me of a quote by John Frame in his doctrine of the Word of God. And in that book he says, God's Word in all of its qualities and aspects is a personal communication from Him being God to us. Imagine God speaking to you right now as realistically as you can imagine Perhaps at the foot of your bed at night. He speaks to you like your best friend, your parents, your spouse, and there's no question in your mind as to who he is. He is God. That's what we have when we open up the scriptures. We have the voice of God. And do you see that you don't need another special revelation from God outside of the Bible? If you had one, It would drive you back to the Bible to see if what you understood or saw was actually understood correctly. See, the Bible is the, what I will consider and call continuously through this message, the epistemological center of gravity for the Christian life. Now, you might say that is a big word. What does that mean? Epistemology is about truth and knowledge. And can you know truth? And is there true knowledge to be had? Is there a a knowledge that is actually able to come down and judge other knowledges and define them and edit them in such a way that every knowledge needs to be edited in conformity to this truth. Well, the reality is, is that the Bible gives us a vision of what is true and right, both New and Old Testaments. They are the ground that tells us what reality is and what the world we live in is about, who God is, who we are, how we should think about others. The the importance of this is that God has spoken truth to us. Are you hearing me? Like, I know right now some of y'all might even be like checking Instagram out on the side, thinking there might be some greater truth than what's being preached today. Like, there's no more important truth. There's no other truth compared to this truth, the truth that comes from your creator to you, your redeemer to you, the redeemed. It is not our truth. It will reveal some things about ourselves that are uncomfortable 
some stuff about the world that maybe didn't make sense before. But it will also reveal the unparalleled beauty and glory of God and his plan for us. He is the only source of truth that gives us hope in this life and the life that is to come. That's kind of what light does, right? It helps you to see where all around you seems dark. It shows you what is. It reveals what truly is. Anybody here ever like heard a, a sort of sound in the night and it had been super dark and you wanted to turn the lights on, but you paused for just a second because you weren't sure you wanted to see what was there? Because that's what light does. It shows you the true state of affairs, right? Some of us don't go to the scriptures because we don't want to turn the light on. We don't want to see what is. Well, that's why Peter says this. Second, Christians need the lamp of the word until our star Lord shows up. Some of you are like, oh, we're going to talk about Marvel. Now, this is the original star Lord, okay? See, Christians need the lamp of the word until our star Lord shows up. Notice what happens in the second part of 19b. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully conformed, or confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns on the morning, and the morning star rises in your hearts. See, the Bible is a lamp. Tom Schreiner says it this way. Uh, Peter's call here to pay attention to the word is actually the main point of the text. For the entire letter up to this point has been pointing to, to this command. Pay attention to the word. Now catch this. Peter sees the word of God as a light that we need to pay attention to. Now he's not the only one. We see other biblical authors that talk about the word as a light that we need to pay attention to. Uh, you'll remember that in Psalm 119.105, we are told, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline the way of life. Don't miss this. God is light and with him there is no darkness at all. He shows us truth. He shows us what moral excellency looks like. He shows us that there is actually a moral excellency that exists that you don't define for yourself, but that he has actually shown humans how they are to live. He's shown us that we are broken. His voice carries his character of light and truth. Not only is God light, but his word brings light. Now, I don't typically use my flashlight when it's day outside, do you? If you do, that's weird. You shouldn't do that. Right? You look weird if you're running around like in the light. But that's kind of the point here. The point is, is the world is not light right now. No, here we are told that this world is a dark place, and God's voice in the Bible is your lamp or flashlight amidst the darkness, particularly here the Old Testament teaching of the day of the Lord. Until that day, like we are we are in utter darkness, but the world is dark. And this speaks of a morally corrupt and ambiguous place where God's word is not known. We are not home yet. We are children of the light, but we are still in a world of darkness. And so what that means is we need to wake up ready, ready for the darkness, reestablishing, understanding, reorienting ourselves to what the light says about all that is around us. Now, if you don't think that the world is a weird place, an ambiguous place, a dark place, just read the news. Uh, I just read a, a couple of stories that I was just like, that is interesting, to say the least. I read a story just this last week of two kids who have three dads with all of their names on the birth certificate. And I was thinking, does not seem like Genesis 1 to me. Uh, I read another story where they're now encouraging people to raise babies. You know what a baby is? A baby where you don't want to commit them to a gender before they choose a gender for themselves. Babies. I'm just like, where am I? I mean, the, wor the world is morally corrupt, ambiguous, and confused. And sometimes wrong is, in our world, actually called right. Good is sometimes called evil. Sometimes we, we praise evil as, as good. Sometimes even our attempts at justice are unjust. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't think we're there yet, but 
I read Judges sometimes, a book where things get worse and worse as people are unfaithful to God. And in the end, in chapters 19 to 21, you have this repetitive refrain where the author of Judges again and again reminds us that in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And catch this, that was not good for everybody. When man did what was right in his own eyes, they were committing horrific sins that got worse and worse. Why? Because they were creating truth for themselves. Does that sound familiar at all? Like, we'll define what is ourselves. We'll have God conform to us. We'll reshape God to fit our image. That's not a new thing. We're not like really philosophical and wiser than previous generations because we are postmodern. We are actually just repeating the sins of former generations. So you doing you is the message of judges, and it's not the message of the Bible for God's people. See, we need to pay close attention to the Word, which is a lamp that helps us make sense of the darkness of this world. So how are you paying close attention to the Word? Are you studying it daily? Are you spending time in the Word? I mean, think about this. If the world is immersed in darkness, are you spending all of your time in the darkness and none of your time with the lamp? Do you think that you might even sometimes not recognize light because it's been too long between the last time you've actually seen it? Paying attention is a a community project as well. In other words, if if you're thinking like, well, I've I've got a flashlight and I don't have to leave my house. Find that when I leave my house, I feel darker, so I'm just going to stay at my home with my flashlight. I feel good, but the Bible says, catch this, if you want to truly understand and know truth and have a real light, a light is a community project. In fact, did you know that Jesus Christ has given gifts to the church, the community of the people of God? Uh, Gifts like shepherds who shepherd and feed you, Uh, and that's the Word of God. I mean, sometimes a meal, but you know, the Word of God is a big thing. And then also teachers who are teaching you in the Word. You know, we as a church, we have a whole equipping program where we are trying to feed you so that you can know the Word and you can grow in your ability to see, to have the light of the Word of God. You need to learn God's Word in community, a community of flesh and blood people where you can know and be known. That's the the purpose of of being a, a person of the light. You know, we are those together collectively who have been saved out of darkness into the marvelous light of God's people. We need other Christians coming around us. We need shepherds. We need teachers. We need other brothers and sisters. The community, catch this, we do not shape the truth. You hear me? Like, we're not saying come so that we can shape the truth for you so that every community has kind of its own version of the truth. No, we are a people who are seeking to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, not one of many truths, but the truth according to God, as God has spoken. It is written. And so we follow the words of God that have been given to us. In fact, the very church is called the pillar and buttress of truth in 1 Timothy 3. But not only do we want you to come and be shaped, and, and, and be shaped by the actual word of God, but are you an active listener? Are you an active listener to the word of God? Are you like the Bereans? You know, I, I love the picture of the Bereans who are, are constantly envisioned as hearing the preaching of the word and then looking to the word and the scriptures and saying, does it, does it match up? And having conversations about that and growing in that. You know, my question is, is when you show up to hear preaching of the word, are you looking to sit back as an audience and say, I think that made me feel good. Maybe that was, that was fine. Are you actually taking notes? Now, some of you are like, I'm not taking notes today, and now I should like pull it. Anybody seen a pen? That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just asking, when you were listening to the Word of God, when you were studying the Word of God, when you were going to equip classes, are you actually, like the Bereans, considering what has been said, meditating on it, and seeing whether or not it's true? And when it is true, glorying in it, when it's not true, or it's maybe you've misunderstood it, you're clarifying it, Are you doing this in community? You need to be an active learner in the people of God. Are you an active listener? And do you know that you need the Holy Spirit to understand the Holy Spirit's book? You know, I I just want to throw this, like, sort of warning out here in a very gentle way. 
But the Bible, the Scriptures, we're going to see in a second, these are words inspired by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity It is the very Word of God. And I believe that if you are a child of God and you have the Holy Spirit, then you want to know what these words say because they are life for you. They are breath for you. They are more precious than gold. Like, that's a spiritual sense of value. You know, these are not gold words, but they are more valuable than gold because you spiritually see the value of them. They are sweeter than honey for you. That's a spiritual sense that's given to believers, that you taste and see that the Word of God is good. It's delightful to you. Once it was annoying to you, at one point maybe irrelevant to you, and now it is sweet to you and valuable to you. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you put your faith in Christ? Are you reading this book spiritually? It's a spiritual book. Do you pray that the Holy Spirit would help you to understand the Word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it would transform you? Do you pray for your preacher when he preaches, that he would speak true words? Well, that's a lot for now. But here's the good news for those in Christ. A new day's coming. You won't always need your flashlight. Did you catch that? He says you don't need a lamp when the sun arrives. Now, did you catch that Peter says you will not always need your lamp? You need it until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I think two ways of describing the same event from different perspectives. And that makes sense. You don't need your flashlight when the sun's up, right? Weird people do that. No, the day dawns, I think that speaks of the Old Testament teaching of the day of the Lord. That great day of judgment against God's enemies and the deliverance of his people. That seems to be in view here and throughout this letter. You'll see in the Old Testament that often this day of the Lord was spoken of. Joel speaks of this day often. And sometimes when he's speaking of the day of the Lord, he's talking about an experience that has already happened historically. Other times he's talking about a great day of the Lord. And all those little days of the Lord that have already happened are really just birth pains that are waiting for that great day of the Lord that we await. So that day is coming, and Peter has that day in view. See, on that day, God is going to restore all things. He's going to usher in absolute peace and fullness of joy forever. There will be no more death, no more tears. Come in close. No more DMV lines. Like all of those things that are so painful in this world will pass away, and we will have the best day ever. Best for some, worst for others. Peter also says on this day, the morning star rises in your hearts. So not only is it the the dawn, the day dawning, but we find the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, I think this is likely an allusion to Numbers 24, 17. Numbers 24, 17, it says, A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And if you continue to read in that chapter, Numbers 24, it goes on to describe God crushing his enemies, much like Peter warns of in chapter 2. Now you might say, well, how does this day happen and dawn before the the light-bearing star rises? Do you see that? Some commentators have asked, like, hey, the order's mixed up again. Like, why did they have, like, the day dawning and then the star or the light comes up? Well, I think there are a number of ways to, to, to sort of answer that. I mean, one is if you read Genesis 1, you're used to this kind of stuff, right? Like you have the light separated from the darkness, and then you have the heavenly like, lights created, right? Um, I don't think that's what's going on here. No, I think if you'll notice, there's a, a second thing that he, he sort of shows here. I think these are actually contemporaneous events. When Jesus arrives, he's going to bring a, a sun-like light dispelling the darkness. In fact, in the New Testament, when it speaks of the day of the Lord, it actually views the day of the Lord in light of who Jesus is. So when the day of the Lord shows up, it's actually the day of Jesus Christ. Paul calls it this in 2 Corinthians 1.14. He speaks of this day and he says, on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now that's when faith becomes sight. That's the day we long for. 
But did you catch where the morning star arises? Where does it arise? In your hearts. That, that's where it's arising. And so in that moment, you see the morning star arising in your hearts. Your hearts are seeing with a new light and a new way that they haven't seen before. The visible return of Jesus Christ will be met with a subjective experience of faith becoming sight. We will no longer need the light of God's prophetic word, promising Christ's return for judgment and salvation, because it will be right before us. We will see it. We'll know it. There'll be an immediacy to that kind of knowledge that isn't just hearing about it, it's actually experiencing it. We will have a new and glorious immediate knowledge of an experience of God unlike anything that we've had before. Uh, it's kind of like what we see in 1 John 3, 2, where we are told, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the day. We could stop right now. But I think this is important, an important understanding of the way the Bible works. The Bible itself is progressive revelation. Now, what that means is, is that we're not looking to progress now beyond the Bible, looking for some new prophetic word. We've had a lot of subsequent prophetic words after Jesus from uh, Muhammad and John Smith and Ellen White and all kinds of others. But that's a misunderstanding of the Bible. That's a misunderstanding of the nature of who Jesus Christ is to God's redemptive story. In God's story, Jesus is the hero. He is the climax. He is the culmination of everything that the Bible prepares for. And catch this, the only thing that we are waiting for, and I'm not saying that we have disagreement about how these events happen to where this happens, but Jesus is coming back in glory. That's what we're waiting for. And so when we're looking for progressive revelation, we understand that we're talking about within the canon of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, that story is unfolding. It's an unfolding narrative. See, God's word comes over time progressively re revealing God's plan. We didn't get it all at once. We didn't get some golden tablets from the heavens. We had many people over time carried along by the Holy Spirit, as we will see, who gave us God's word. That means that, by the way, when we teach the Bible, we're trying to show how texts fit into the grand narrative of Scripture. In fact, just last week I was sitting in on the Ten Commandments class where uh, Dr. Mead was teaching uh, there on the Ten Commandments. And you know where he didn't start? Exodus. You know where he started? Genesis. Why? Because if we want to understand how we got to, Genesis, uh, to Exodus, we need to understand what happened up to that point. And so he was showing us progressively how we got to the Ten Commandments and then how it fits into the larger narrative of the Bible before we even discuss and un unfold the Ten Commandments. That's how we read the Bible. We're trying to understand text with text and how they relate to one another. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, who's the radiance of the glory of God in Hebrews 1. He's here. We're not looking forward to who the Messiah is. We know who it is. It's Jesus. Well, third, notice this. The Old Testament prophecy is not prophetic fiction, as false teachers claim in verse 20. It's not prophetic fiction. Now, verse 20 provides a reason for the encouragement to pay attention to the word. In verse 19, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, what is urgent for Christians awaiting Christ's return? With the, the return of Christ in view, Peter says we need to know something first of all. Now, that statement, first of all, is showing a kind of urgency. Uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, the movie 2012. I don't know if y'all have seen that. It's a book about like the end of the world. Uh, there was this like solar flare and the plates of the earth started shifting and there's this worldwide flood. And uh, here's the thing you need to know, first of all, in that kind of situation, get to the ark, which is like this submarine that if you're not on it, you're dead. Like that's just the way the story ends. First of all, make sure you get on the ark. In fact, that's all that matters. There's no second. And Peter says that the world is going to end with Jesus coming back. And what is the first priority? Well, it centers on this prophecy of Scripture. Now, Scripture is an interesting word here. It comes from the, the word graphe, which is a word for writing, literal writings. So it speaks of that which is written down. So don't miss this. Peter understands the written down word of God 
specifically here, prophecies about the return of Christ, to be the first and urgent need of Christians seeking to find deliverance on the last day when Jesus returns. If you are serious about being ready for Jesus coming back, you need to be serious about the word of God. The written down word. Of course, what can be said of prophecy is true of all the scriptures. Jesus used the phrase, the law and the prophets as a shorthand for the, the whole Bible in Matthew 7, 12. Uh, you'll remember in, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, the other uh, massively important text about the nature of the Bible, Paul says all scripture is God breathed, and it's profitable, profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, that was good, and the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be made complete, equipped for every good work. See, the prophetic word speaks of the prophecy in the writings of the scriptures, in fact, John Calvin says this, I understand by prophecy of Scripture here that which is contained in the Holy Scriptures. So with the return of Jesus in view, we urgently need to know our Old Testament Scriptures, that they come not from someone's own opinion. Now, this is, I think, a, a very important phrase. These teachings are not from someone's own opinion. I think what's happening here second is that false teachers have been bending the scriptures to suit their own wills, especially when it comes to the second coming. Now, this has been interpreted, this phrase, that it's not coming from someone's own opinion. It's been interpreted in a couple of ways. Some understand this to mean an offensive argument against false teachers. Others understand this verse defensively as Peter defending himself against false claims of the false teachers. But I think what is actually right here, is what most scholars say, which is that Peter is going on the offense. He's attacking teachings of the false teachers who are translating this as uh, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, like you've been doing false teachers. Now that might sound a little bit convoluted, so come in close. Here's what Peter's saying. These false teachers interpret prophecy to support their own views. I'm sure you've never known anybody like that. Yeah, eisegesis was the thing back then. You know where you take a text and you use it and you spin it to meet your purposes rather than trying to, with integrity, understand what it meant in its original context? These teachers claimed King Jesus wasn't coming back so they could do what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Now, why would people manipulate the truth? Have you ever questioned the truth? I'm not talking about those hard texts, right? I'm talking about the obvious text. Have you ever had a time where you began to question whether or not God has said as though it's not written? Like maybe it's easier not read your Bible so that you don't know what is written, right? But there are all kinds of reasons that we begin not to be obedient to God's word. Just think about it. You know, sin in your life both displays a weakness in and weakens my confidence in God's word if unchecked. D does that make sense? Like if I'm sinning, then I've already been weakened. I I've shown a weakness towards my confidence in God's word. But as I sin, it propels me into more weakness in trusting God and obeying him. Or what about just not knowing God's word well? It's hard to, to really know truth if you don't know truth. It's hard to detect what's false if you don't know what's true. Or what about fear of man or woman? What people might think of you if you were to say true things that are at odds with what culture says is true? What about confidence in the flesh? That maybe you know better than God or you have a better perspective than God. Or what if you have a sense that God's word hasn't met your expectations in the past and so you're looking to someone else for the future? or a postmodern culture that says there is no absolute truth. You're just trying to do you and figure out what truth is for you, and it doesn't matter if your truth is different than my truth. There really is no objective truth that has been handed down from God that edits all of our truths. Or what about not coveting with a local church, which is the pillar and buttress of truth? And how often do you see someone who steps away from the church as or right before they step into heretical teaching? 
Don't miss this. Peter gives a view of how not to read the Bible. The Bible is not a magic eight ball, right? We don't go to the Bible and say, you know what, I don't know if I should um, keep my job or not, and so I'm just going to kind of shake it up and turn, and I'm going to point to a page. Now, don't get me wrong. God has used this in people's lives. Uh, this is probably how my mom gave me my name. But, but this is not the, the way that the Scriptures and Peter speak of using the Scriptures that you kind of go looking for a word about yourself and you find it immediately. Like it's easy, like an eight ball where you just shake up and open to a random page and verse for your fortune. You know, maybe you're wondering if you should get a new job. Some of you have done this. I have done this. I'm just putting this out there. But you open to a verse like Exodus 23, 19. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, man, I knew it was going to be bad if I took that job. Knew it. Going to be cooked in my mother's milk. think that's creative interpretation. We need to read the Word of God and understand it in its context and understand how it fits with the rest of Scriptures. What we want to do is we're coming to the Word of God, if we want to have wisdom, is learn how to think with the mind of Christ. We're not always given the answer what to think, but we can learn how to think about how to live in the world around us. He is a light in the darkness, a relevant light to this darkness that we live in. See, there is no book that is more for you, but it's not about you. You you hear me? This book is the book that is most for you in all of creation, but it's not ultimately about you. I had a friend um, by illustration who used to brag about this role that he had in O Brother, Where Out Thou. Have y'all seen that movie, O Brother, Where Out Thou? Pretty impressive movie back in the day. George Clooney was acting in it, and he was like, oh yeah, I was in that movie. I was like, oh, where? He said, oh, well, I was a number, one of a number of extras in a crowd at a party. Here, go to this scene and slow it down. And he said, oh, that was too fast. You need to slow it down more. And hold on, just a little bit slower. And oh, yeah, I think I kind of see your visage in the background, maybe. But if you blink, you missed it. And yet to him, to hear him talk about it, he was George Clooney when it started, Right? And we kind of treat the Bible that way sometimes. But when we zoom out at the Bible, and we zoom out, we find that the Bible is actually about our great creator God and his plan to save many sinners from destruction through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why in verse 21, he says this. Fourth, Old Testament prophecy came by men carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, because verse 21 grounds verse 20. This means that we need to pay close attention to the apostles' interpretation of the Old Testament because it comes from God himself. Verse 21, one of the most important scriptures on scripture. Here's what he says. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, here Peter's telling us about how God revealed himself through the prophets. Uh, This was described by B.B. Warfield and after him many others uh, as concursus. That's a big word, concursus. But it's this idea that inspiration involved both a human and divine element. Peter states, a denial and an affirmation to clarify this idea of how Scripture came to us. He says, no Scripture came to us by the will of man. Man's personality, his preferences, his tendencies, his weaknesses, etc. They never added to or took away from the Bible. Yet God spoke his perfect, true, illuminating word through men in particular historical settings with unique personalities. The human agent in no way inhibited God's word from coming to us without mixture of error. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that word for carried along is really interesting here in this context. Because it's used for produced earlier and then as born in verses 17 and 18 to describe the voice born to the Father. Now come in close. Do you see this? Peter says at the transfiguration, I heard this word born to the Father that came to me. I heard it. It was very the very word of God. And now we have received a word by men carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that word too is from what? God. 
We have received a word of God in the scriptures on equal par with that word that I heard straight from God the Father in heaven. That is the nature of the word of God. So hang with me. Old Testament prophecies of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are as just as much God's word as the word Peter heard at the transfiguration. And that's true of all of the scriptures. Now let me make a quick clarification here. We get really excited about people who receive revelation directly from God today. In fact, there's a fad in Christian books that like consistently repeats itself where somebody has heard a direct word from God, like in Jesus' calling, and they dictate it and write it down for people as words straight from God especially, or somebody that's gone to heaven and actually seen heaven, and people have never read the book of Revelation by John, and yet they are reading this book about a five-year-old who went to heaven like it is Scripture truth. When we do that, we are not trusting what God's Word says about God's Word. We always look to the very words of God in the Scriptures at God's Word. We aren't getting excited about other professed experiences and interpretations that are outside of God's Word. God's Word is God's truth. It's the, the standard by which we judge all other things. So let me just leave you with some last truths about God as we close up. Number one, there is no greater source of truth. So I want to be clear. In this book, we have the only hope for life today and in the age to come. It's the only surety that we have. This is our epistemological center of gravity, how we know truth. The scriptures are straight from God. There's no higher court of authority or appeals than God himself. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 1.8, an apostle, he says this, just to be very clear. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Are you catching this? Paul, an apostle, says, if I start teaching something other than what's been delivered and written down to you, or you hear that from somebody, even if it's an angel from heaven, you tell them they need to go back to where they came from. See, Paul is saying that the Scriptures are the standard of truth for anything that comes after. It's interesting that Satan is, also, um, is compared to a, an angel of light, and yet sometimes what seems to be true is from the father of lies. We need to be careful and, and recognize that we are susceptible to deception. We need help in our pursuit of truth. We need the word of God and others. Uh, later, Paul would need to correct Peter and Galatians about misapplying the gospel. Why? Because God's word stands in authority over the church, not vice versa. Do you see that? God's word, it, it corrects all of us. But second, God's word is perspicuous or clear. But it's not easy to understand all the time, right? Like God's word, you, you have a Bible, you can open up and read and understand. That's one of the beliefs of the Reformation. The Catholic Church said common people can't read the Bible and understand it. So let the professionals do it. Now, that does not mean you don't need teachers who are gifts of the church and preachers and pastors and shepherds. But what it does mean is, is that you need to read your Bible and trust that you can see truth and know truth, and even better, in community. See, the Bible is perspicuous, but it's, it's not always easy to understand. Peter, Peter will even say, man, I've been reading Paul. Paul's hard to understand sometimes. I'm apostle, right? He's saying that to others, though. It's hard. But all the essential doctrines for life and doctrine are clear for us in the Scriptures. I love what St. Jerome said. The scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear, fear of drowning. But they are deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching the bottom. That's the truth of the Bible. Third, we as a church believe in the inerrancy of God's word. You'll notice in our statement of faith that we believe that God's word is infallible and inerrant. And I don't have time to get into all of this, but what I would say is, is that you need to trust that God's word is true. That you can trust every word of the word of God. If we start getting into the habit of like questioning whether or not God's word is not true because the original writers of the scriptures or prophets were maybe having a bad day and were off or maybe accidentally made a mistake, then we become like the Jesus seminar who goes in and starts evaluating whether or not God's words are true and Jesus has actually said anything. They decided 85% of what Jesus has said is not actually true. 
See, all of Scripture is true. It is inerrant. Kevin DeYoung says inerrancy means the Word of God always stands over us and never we that stand over the Word of God. Fourth, true spirituality is bookish by nature. True spirituality is bookish by nature. So often I hear this thought that spiritual churches don't get bogged down in the Bible. Now, we just read verse 21, and how was the Bible written? Men carried along by who? The Holy Spirit, the author of the Bible, doesn't want you to pay attention to his book so you can be spiritual. That makes no sense, right? Like the Holy Spirit loves his book, and his book loves Jesus, and his Jesus shows us the Father. That means that Christianity, by definition, is a spiritual religion, and that is why people have often been called, sometimes as a pejorative, Christians have been referred to as a people of the book. It's because we know that we find our Savior in the Scriptures. We read it. We live it. And finally, if you're not a Christian, I, I want to encourage you this morning that God has spoken true words. Words that you can know are true. Words that He has actually shown the truth of in history. We, we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a great starting point. Where we have as many as 500 witnesses, according to 1 Corinthians 15, who saw Jesus raised from the dead. And if Jesus is raised from the dead in history and time and space, then what that means is, is that everything that he said was true. And one of the things that he said that's most important for you is that we are all sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. You've sinned against God. You might not think that you have, but the Bible says you have. And as a result of that, you need forgiveness of your sins. And that's, that forgiveness is only found through Jesus who died on the cross for you. So today, if you've not put your faith in Christ, trusting him with your life, trusting that he died for you as sinner, that he was raised to give you hope of a future, then you can be saved. So if you want to do that today, please talk to me or a number, another member of the church. We would love to talk to you about what it looks like to become a Christian. But this time, let's go ahead and pray. And Lucas is going to come up and lead us in song. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you praising you that you have spoken to us. And Father, we confess that all too often we lose sight of how marvelous it is that your transcendent God has stooped down to make yourself known to us. And not only have you made yourself known to us, Father, you have loved sinners by sending your very own son to make yourself known such that to see him is to see you. And in him, we see your mercy and grace. And so, Father, as we leave from this place today, we pray that you would stir up again our affections for you and that it would be seen in our listening ear as we closely attend to and listen to your word as has been spoken. Lord, do this for the glory of your name we do pray. Amen.